Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Blockware Intelligence YouTube channel. This week I have two very special guests. We have Checkmate and TXMC, both from Glassnode. Um, these are two guys that I really you know, look for in a lot of ways with um, on-chain analysis and uh, two thought leaders in the space and, and uh, you know, real pioneers, especially Checkmate's been in this space for a long time. So um, this episode is just going to kind of be a mastermind discussion where we're just kind of, um, you know, talking about different uh, things we find important in the field and uh, just kind of see where the conversation goes. So, hey, guys, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, mate. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. So I just want to kind of start it with like, what are you guys up to here at Glassnode? It seems like Checkmate, you guys are hiring everybody. It's, a, it's an exciting time. So, I mean, I've been with Glassnode since February. And uh, when I started, we were a relatively small team and I was the content, uh, I kind of took over as the content side of things. Uh, so it was just me to start off. Uh, but we've kind of reached a point where, you know, we, we kind of want to put together the textbook, uh, the Wikipedia, whatever you want to call it, um, of, uh, of on-chain analytics, right? There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of smart ideas, but it's a different skill set to kind of distill it down into something that people can understand and digest and and really absorb uh, over time. And it very much, I mean, it, it Bitcoin itself is a is a unique asset. This market is a unique uh, space, and uh, increasingly we're seeing you know institutional um, funds starting to come in, and they're essentially at ground zero. And you know much of retail is also at ground zero. Uh, although you know retail understands Bitcoin mo- better than most people. And on-chain analytics is kind of this discipline that, I mean, I, I've been following it since, you know, 2019, 2018, when the, you know, the Realize cap came out and, and really exploded onto the scene. And we started to go, hang on a second, we can really study this thing. And what we're trying to do is, is bring all of that information, that knowledge base, um, you know, obviously, you know, Glassnode's rolling out tools like Workbench, which just gives, you know, incredible power to, to analysts to come up with unique insights. And what we're trying to do is bring that information in an educational sense, whether it's through Glassnode Academy, whether it's through the video content, Week on Chain, um, and many other endeavors that we've got in, on the uh, on the back burner. Uh, it is far more than a one-man job, and uh, there's some great talent out there. So we're just slowly building up the team, right? We're starting with uh, Permable Nino and TXMC. Um, they've come on board in the last couple of weeks um, to try and really pour that foundation. We'll kind of get up to phase two, and uh, and who knows where we go from there, but it's certainly an exciting step in the, what I think is the right direction. It's been really cool to see you guys really go after the, the educational side of things. Um, I think, you know, just the, the biggest barrier when we're, when we're putting out newsletters or, or making videos or um, just posting charts on Twitter in general, um, people, you know, obviously since, since on-chain analysis is just new, people don't really have um, a full understanding as to, you know, how, how some of these metrics kind of correlate with each other, what to look at. And so, I really respect that you guys have kind of been leading that front and check you have even, you know, before you guys have really launched like um, a lot of the stuff you've been doing lately with, you know, with check on chain. Um, I think, you know, that was, that was what uh, TXMC told me that he used when he came into the space. Um, so yeah, th- th- it's gotta be really cool for you to kind of see how this has evolved. Like I remember I talked to David a, a few months ago and he was just saying like, is is such a niche thing and now to see where it's at like he never would have imagined it like how does it how does that feel to you i mean we we uh txmc and i actually had a call this morning uh with our community group that was just kind of touching on all of this uh i never expected to be in the suddenly phase uh, at this point in time right and even for me personally right i was a i was a civil engineer you know in, in february 
Um, you know, Bitcoin absorbed my attention for uh, for many years, but uh, I still had you know the fiat lifestyle. And uh, when I'm really you know the opportunity to kind of come into Glassnode and and really help build out um, these products has just been insane. Um, seeing the amount of traction that uh, and and also the skeptics, right? You need you need a few good skeptics before something's really uh, getting getting online and uh, making a meaningful dent in things. But um, you know, I mean, even TXMC, you've probably got a good story as well. You're a, you're fairly recent into the space. You've kind of come in and and seen this thing all blow up. Uh, what's it been like on your end? The last few months of my life have been absolutely amazing, uh, and not at all what I expected to be happening when 2021 began. Uh, you know, I've I've followed Bitcoin for uh, years, but I didn't really understand it until you know, late last year was when I started taking it more seriously. I had a friend of mine who was really enthusiastic about the space and and he's really a a technical analysis wizard. And, you know, he got me kind of hyped about it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to pay more attention to this. I think I've been ignoring it too long. And I I got in out of the market a few times uh, and and not didn't really know what I was investing in. I didn't understand what made Bitcoin good money. I didn't quite understand the properties of sound money. And I certainly didn't know what on-chain analysis was. Uh, and then, you know, I started reading a little bit more. I've, I've just been on a personal journey of my own uh, the last few years. And some of that has led me down, the, you know, learning about the markets, learning about econo- economics. And, uh, you know, all, all of those things have kind of prepared me for when I finally discovered Bitcoin. And earlier this year, I was just digging around and, you know, I, I, I saw the stock to flow model, which I thought was really interesting. You know, a lot of people, that's like one of the first things they see now uh, when, they're, when they're first learning about Bitcoin data. I saw the stock to flow model and I was like, you know, this is cool. This seems interesting, but I, I, I think that there's more, there's more going on that I could learn. And so I started looking around and check, you were the first person I found. I was just looking around. Uh, I, I got a Twitter account and, you know, I, I found you. And I, you said on-chain an- analyst in your profile. I said, what, what the hell is that? I went to your website. I found Permable on the same day. And I was like, oh my God, there's all this data for Bitcoin uh, that exists that isn't like anything in any traditional market. It gives us visibility to the human behavior, the market psychology going on underneath. And we can really peel back the layers of the supply and demand forces and just all of that interesting stuff that goes on that we've never truly been able to see in all of its glory uh, in other asset classes. And so once I've discovered that, I mean, that, that's basically been the last six, of, six months of my life. Um, and I don't know, it's been a whirl, whirlwind. And now I'm working with you guys, you're my colleagues. You know, I, I first reached out to Will months ago on Twitter to ask him about something he'd posted because he was also one of the early, first people I found. And now for us all to be working together in this space and helping to tell the story, and there's all these people eager to learn about it. I still feel, I mean, I'm very much a learner. I'm still very much a student. Uh, and uh, this has just been, it's very exciting. And I, I have, no idea where it's going to go, but it seems like the arrow is pointed straight up for this space. It, it, it's been really cool, man, to see your account just kind of blow up. I remember um, you had posted, uh, I think it was the top and bottom model, uh, model Willie's uh, top yeah. model. And then like, I think you had like uh, the Delta cap as like the floor and the model, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, it, it got retweeted by uh, Raphael. I remember on like a thread he'd put together um, about Workbench when it was first introduced and I remember your following went from like a uh, hundred to like two or 3000 in a day. And I was like, wow, th- this guy's account is really going to blow up. Cause you've been on Twitter for like two months, right? Yeah. At that point, I think so. I think that was late July maybe, uh, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, and 
it just took it's taken off from there. You're right. It was a workbench thread that Raphael posted. He had a bunch of other folks work that was all really cool. Um, and for me at the time, you know, I I, I was still um, had no idea that this was possibly something I could uh, maybe make a living at or build like some kind of uh, a career doing. I just found it super interesting. And then all of a sudden, Willie's responding to that thread. You reached out to me. You asked me something about it. Raphael retweets it. I mean, I, I had been downstairs making a sandwich. You know, like I wasn't doing, I, I posted that thread and the same day, I think I posted an article on Medium about long-term holder being a portion of a, uh, adjusted supply. And I was just posting thoughts. I just wanted to get involved in the discussion. You know, it wasn't, wasn't anything revelatory. I just wanted people to know I was interested in what was, what this space was. And I, I don't know, the response was overwhelming and it's been an avalanche since. Yeah, it's been really cool like to see the response from, from the community in general, um, not just to you, but like all these, all these new faces coming in the scene. It's like the community just cares about, you know, the content you're putting out. And if you're kind of contributing to thought leadership in some way, they're going to recognize that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's no surprise to, to see your, you know, you, you get recognition, but you know, I'm really happy for you. And, um, now you're working at Glassnode, like, that's just so cool, man. Um, but yeah, like, what do you, what do you guys think before we get into actual, like, like, analysis part of it um what do you guys think about like the evolution of on-chain like where would you kind of envision it in the next five to ten years because like i made a I made a tweet a couple of days ago and i basically said like um on-chain analysts are kind of the economists of bitcoin um whereas like that that kind of got a, a negative connotation from a lot of people but i think like economists have never had a you know completely indisputable transparent open ledger to pull the data from so like would you guys agree with that? Disagree? Um, I, I would agree and actually take it a step further. I actually think it's, uh, I think I read, I'm not sure if I retweeted you, but I put out a similar thing uh, after I saw your tweet um, saying that I think that uh, on-chain analysts are behavioral economic, uh, economists. And the reason for that is because ultimately what we're looking for is how are the different cohorts of investors and how it's, it's a combination of things. And I like to unpack what on-chain really is. You have the base level Bitcoin database, right? You can look at transaction counts, you can look at hash rate, you can look at coin volumes moving. You've got the base layer of data that anybody on any block explorer can pull out. There's then a process that you go through that cleans that data because um, TXNC, you put out a good chart. I think it was like a box of Lego, right? And it shows you this is data, it's just noise. Um, and then there's this is structured data where you actually put it together and you clean it up and you make it make sense. But then at the end of it, there's a house where that's the story that you tell out of the data. And this is actually the part where I think a lot of people, uh, particularly people who like to post that on-chain is a waste of time, this is the part that they don't understand. Um, there is a data is just data, right? Um, there can be edge in the data. There can be no edge in the data. What it takes is somebody to actually understand what is the correct tool for the correct job on the correct time frame to then build the story around what's going on. So we've got all of this data, which you're right, is immutable. It's fact. It's truth. Um, people will talk about, you know, oh, derivatives data isn't on-chain. It's like, no, but any analyst who's just using one data source is probably not a very good analyst, right? So as this market evolves, where I see it going in five years or so, we're going to have our on-chain data set, which is going to come out of Bitcoin. We're going to probably see the on-chain data or, what, you know, whatever you want to call it coming out of uh, Lightning Network. We'll start to see the interplay between those two markets. We have our derivatives markets, which, you know, the, the beautiful thing about this industry is how transparent it is. We can see all of the leverage. We can see funding rates. We can use all of this to build up a basis. We've got multiple markets that are all, into, all talking to each other and all interacting. 
And what it really takes is a skilled analyst to say, okay, this is the right tool for the right job. Sure, we're seeing reduced transaction volume on the main chain, but is that actually because of Lightning or is that because of something else, right? There is a story there. There's a narrative that you can pitch together. And what I strongly suspect is going to happen, right, if we believe that Bitcoin is going to become the uh, the true economic force that it is, then what we're going to see is um, the same way that people analyze GDP numbers, the same way that people analyze the flow of money through the system, this is unprecedented and radically transparent access to what will ultimately be the underpinning of the future of the economy. So being able to actually track this level of information is one thing, but being able to tell the story on what's really going on, that's where the edge is going to be, right? So it's going to be an evolving field. It's why, you know, it, it's why at Glassdoor, a big thing that we like to do is we like to put out this these information resources because the more people that understand how these things tick over, how they interplay, how to use the right tool at the right time, the more edge people are going to have. And, you know, um, TXMC can certainly vouch for it. I pretty much use exclusively on-chain data. Um, I don't share most of my analysis outside of uh, Glassnode publicly. So all my kind of personal analysis uh, goes through different channels. And, uh, you know, we've pretty much tracked the market. The only the only point that I've uh, been relatively um, uh, taken by surprise was after the 64,000 high, we had that first, remember there was that first leverage flush out? I think it took us down to like 50-something thousand. Um, that took me by surprise. But from that point onwards, you then start looking, all right, what's going on under the surface? And then before the May sell-off, it starts to really sink in. So, um, of course, you're not going to get all of these elements uh, in play, but I can see that there is a whole lot of supply and demand dynamics going on that most people have no idea or no access to. Um, and that's purely an educational side of things. So I reckon that as more people come into this, as more of these lightning networks, liquids, side chains, whatever, that whenever it's economically meaningful, there's going to be data for it. And we can start to piece that all together into a story. And, uh, you know, I think it's actually going to get more exciting and more dynamic with time. And uh, the bigger that this economy gets, just like the normal economy, um, we're going to see more and more interesting avenues and more insights and bigger pictures and more complexity. And that's, to be honest, that's what makes markets so fun. It's an ever-solving puzzle that uh, is never quite finished. Yeah, go Absolutely. ahead, TXMC, if you have any thoughts as well. Well, Czech summed up a lot of what I have to say. I, I find a lot of times that I'll have a thought that it isn't like fully formed and it isn't quite as articulate and elegant in my head. And then Czech will put it into words for me. Uh, I find him doing that a lot. Um, the, <laughs> you know, it's really interesting the thing you said about you know, the right tool for the right job. And I think that at this moment, as on chain is being discovered by so many new people, and likewise, many of those folks maybe don't even fully understand Bitcoin yet, uh, and they and even further than that may not understand money or what makes Bitcoin so uh, alluring and, and why we're so interested in it. And so there's a there's different layers of understanding. And I think that we have a great opportunity as some of the folks that are early to this space um, that, to, to really kind of help shape how we can use on-chain to tell the story of Bitcoin to different audiences. And, you know, all these audiences have their own biases. They're the institutional guys, uh, and, and they, they're looking at Bitcoin for their reasons. There's people like myself who see it as a wealth play for their family and a hedge against currency debasement. Uh, you know, there's people who are trying to just stack sats and get rich, you know, whatever the reason is, all these people have a desire to hear the story of what's going on in Bitcoin. And it's up to us as the analysts to pull the right instruments out and put the right ingredients together uh, to, to come out with the narrative that helps them understand the asset so that they can make good decisions. And because that's really what all this is about is, is, is 
we have all these metrics, we have all these numbers, and like Czech said, data is data. And if you don't understand it fully or, or you're using the wrong data, you're not going to get the proper kind of outcomes that you're looking for. And, and I, I think that there's a lot of miss, there's a disconnect between what people expect from the on-chain data and what it's actually telling you. Um, and there, there's, there's still a lot of learning to be had, I guess is my point. Uh, I find it really exciting. And I think that as more brains come to this space and we're able to share this information, that we'll get new ideas. And it's kind of like particle physics. You know, We've got all these things, all these little molecules that all represent different market forces. And we're kind of banging them together and seeing how they bounce off each other. And we write some things down and then we slap a few more together, see how they bounce off each other. And we just need more energy in the space. You know, We need more minds in here, knocking things around, pulling things apart, asking questions. And I think that in five years' time, after we experience a full market cycle with on-chain, which we haven't done yet, uh, I think that we'll know a lot more about this asset. And it's going to be a truly exciting time to be interested in finance. And um, I, I don't know. I think that this is really kind of a new paradigm. I, yeah, love, that I, I love that uh, analogy to particle physics and just testing out ideas because you're absolutely right. It, I mean, we have to remember that this discipline and people who kind of take the sword to the discipline as a whole – the realized cap, which is kind of the, the, the foundational piece of on-chain analytics, kind of the first metric that allowed us to kind of go, hang on a second, there's a whole lot more here. Um, you know, and it's kind of the baseline for a lot of things. That only came out the back end of 2018, right? Then we had a capitulation where everybody left the room and really it was, it was very few people focusing on this. Um, you know, we saw 2019 uh, where we had that uh, the plus token rally, which kind of there was a little bit of after the fact, right? We we studied uh, a, a few people. I think Ergo BTC did some excellent work um, looking at the flow of funds, and that's kind of getting into the forensics, which is kind of the next layer down of on chain, um, where you're actually looking at individual transactions. But you know, he identified that there was all this demand going on in China that we hadn't accounted for, and a whole bunch of people. And we're shorting this thing on derivatives markets, expecting it to, to you know, collapse at 6,000. And uh, it just shot straight through. And what we didn't understand at that time was that there was this underlying demand for the plus token Ponzi. And then we saw that blow off top. And, we, you know, people have to kind of watch how the supply and demand dynamics flow through there. But now we have the tools, right? I mean, again, Glassnode itself was only really just growing up in that phase, right? right? It was built in the bear market. Um, it's a great example of a product that's kind of come out of there's that longer term vision of where this market's going and what the opportunity set looks like. Uh, and the product was developed during that phase. And again, there's very, very few pioneers who were really talking about this space back then. Um, and now we're seeing the first proper full scale bull market where we get to see these supply and demand dynamics. And what's quite interesting, and you know, maybe we can transition into the market as we are at the moment. But all indications, as far as I'm concerned, show that we just had a bear market. And, we're, and, you know, a lot of the signs are pointing to the fact we're getting towards the back end of it. So, you know, it's almost uh, we're starting to see these behaviors play out as bigger money comes into the space, um, as more structured markets come in. I mean, I'm used to the, uh, the Darth Maul wicks, right, where the thing trades up, uh, liquidates everyone, trades down, liquidates everyone and comes back. I mean, Litecoin gave us an example of that the other day. Um, but we essentially don't have those wicks anymore. We don't have these kind of scam wicks that uh, blow everybody out on both sides. The markets become much, much more structured. I remember talking to Permeable Nino um, on the, uh, as we rallied higher, um, you know, through that January, February period. And uh, we were looking at the, the, the main one that sticks with me is that when we rallied to 42,000 and we pulled back in January to 29, 
that pullback was just the most textbook structured. I've never seen Bitcoin trade in such a structured pullback before in my life. Um, it was just, I've, and I've studied all of the, the the corrections and how it played out and all the different data. Uh, that was just so textbook. Uh, Twenty nine thousand was just a, a an absolute line in the sand, and the thing bounced off it like an absolute dream. So you know we're seeing the data, the discipline, the people uh, come to more to terms with this information, these data sets as the market plays out in real time. And I mean, you know, people can critique it all they want, but it's uh, you know it it is just unforgeable data. Um, and uh, what you do with it is then uh, over to the skill of the analyst. Yeah, one, one thing you kind of touched on, uh, which I, I kind of want to get you to expand on a little bit further, is this whole concept of like moving away from the four-year cycle, because this is something you've been vocal about before. Um, I agree with you. I think like over time, this whole concept of like these four-year having cycles and uh, bull bear markets, like I think all that kind of just becomes like ambiguous. I think over time, like Bitcoin will start to just be this more free floating, um, you know, we'll have these like dampened moves up and down. But I think like the, the you know, when you put Bitcoin in log scale and everyone thinks about, you know, the uh, the shape of the four year cycle, like, I, I think we'll veer away from that over time. Like what are, what are your thoughts? Um, I Yeah, I, I do think that um, there's a few angles to this that I can go down. Um, the first one is that I think the four year cycle was obviously driven a lot by the mining space and punctuated by the blow-up of Mt. Gox because that blow-up of Mt. Gox created the first uh, really you know, serious bear market, right? That was the multi-year uh, pain point, right? Almost two years long. And that really, that the length of that bear market kind of defined that two-and-a-half-year bear, one-and-a-half-year bull type cycle. Now, 2017 then, then happened and we kind of had a similar behavior and when we sold off down to 3,000, so we were trading at 6,000, you know, that was the price floor through most of 2018. And then we had that capitulation move down to 3K. And that bottoming pattern, uh, I remember it vividly. Um, it was April Fool's Day when we popped above 4,000 in a short squeeze. And in the exact same way that uh, 2013, the Mount Gox event created that four-year cycle, right? By this point in time, miners are becoming increasingly small in terms of their sell side, uh, we also have to factor in the maturation of markets, both the size of money coming in and the fact that miners can get financing so they don't actually have to sell their coins as much. Uh, it's also not as Wild West, right? We've got some very, very proficient uh, miners in the space now. They're more capital vehicles than they are kind of crazy miners running around buying as much hardware as they can in the peak of the bull. Um, they're far more structured and considered businesses now. So I actually think that the mining side of it has certainly dissipated in terms of its influence, and that's a four-year effect. Um, I think that the other side of it is that rally. Uh, as we came out of the uh, the $3,000, $4,000 bottom in 2018-19, that plus token um, uh, rally that put it up to 14000 that was kind of a miniature bull. And I remember the reason that I think the four-year cycles are dead is actually a psychological one. And it goes back to what I was saying about I think on-chain is a uh, behavioral economic phenomena. I remember all of the chat rooms that I was in, that when it popped up above 4,000, everyone goes, oh man, I did not stack hard enough. Everybody expected that that bottoming pattern to go for like a year like it did back in, uh, in 2015, and it didn't. The thing rallied and everybody realized I'm underweight and people just bought and bought and bought. And then what we, and we could see this in the data, even after that $14,000 top, um, we, people stacked all through 2019, all into 2020. March 2020 happened and people just kept buying. 
that moment was where people recognized that feeling, that FOMO feeling of, oh man, I did not buy enough BTC. That is, I think that emotion that we saw in 2019 broke the four-year cycle. So the same way that Mt. Gox said it, I think that the plus token Ponzi broke it because from that point, people realized that this is now a mature asset. I actually don't have enough of it and I'm going to keep stacking it in rain, hail or shine. We've then seen our blow off top up at uh, 64,000. We saw a pullback, right? And that same, I remember when we sold off in May, I put out a tweet that said the same thing. This is 2019. This bottom, this $29,000 bottom feels like it's going to go just long enough to scare everybody away, but not long enough for you to stack enough as much as you want. And that same FOMO is exactly what I'm seeing play out in this rally up from uh, 29 to where we are are now, uh, 48,000. I think that honestly, and when I look at the structure of the market, I look at how well it's trading, the bigger money that's in the space, to me, it feels like the four-year cycle is already done for, and we've actually moved into this kind of repricing um, and then a strong consolidation, right? Really prove that we belong up here, acclimatize, uh, and then rally up from there. So, uh, you know, I actually think the cycles are gone, and this is why I think supply dynamics uh, by far and away the way to look at things rather than saying it's going to blow off in December and uh, hoping for the best. Yeah, like one thing that's very interesting, by the way, like I never thought about the whole 2019 thing. Um, In March of last year, it seems like a lot of behaviors, um, at least from an on-chain perspective, completely shifted. Like one thing I I like to look at is um, like, you know, the the liquid supply shock ratio, just the comparison of liquid to highly liquid and liquid. Um, When you kind of plot that out over time, we've basically been in this like descending channel since like 2012 2013 and then as like right after the the liquidity crunch last year um it we kind of broke out above that channel and we've just kind of been free floating above it and so like that's one thing to me it's really interesting to see like we're not we're not following that behavioral pattern anymore um and then also like i think part of that by the way is just like people are pulling coins off exchanges in general because you have like more institutional like mark participants now um, but also like one interesting thing has been when you run like a ratio of long-term holders versus short-term and you kind of plot that out, like the reaccumulation that long-term holders have, have kind of, uh, done over the last couple months, has been pretty unprecedented in terms of like a kind of the base that they had to grow, like had, that they had to reaccumulate was way higher than, um, post 2017. But just like when you basically like look at from the pure bottom to where we are now, cause we've almost, well, we have just actually, you know, fully recovered since the drawdown in May um, or earlier this year. Um, it's interesting to see like how fast that those long-term holders have reaccumulated those coins. And like, to me, that that's like a kind of a, a differentiating factor as well. Like showing that kind of we're, we're veering away from any like historical behavior. Also like the hot, this is just another thing, like hot waves now. Um, you posted this and then to be quite honest, I kind of just like copied tweeted you just like looking at inverse, whether you want to look at it in, in terms of, um, you know, outputs below, below six months or above, but, you know, um, coins that, that haven't moved in at least a month is at an all-time high, 90, 93% of supply, which that's pretty crazy too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, there's a lot of weird things. I don't want to say weird, different things going on uh, with the supply dynamics in the last, you know, 18 months or so, a year. Uh, 
that are, are that have changed from the norm. I mean, I guess it's been more than that since March of last year. Uh, you know, you said it a second ago, the exchanges. I think Jan from Glassnode posted something yesterday, and it was marking the uh, exchange balance in BTC. And on the day of the liquidity crunch in March was the peak of exchange balances in BTC. And since then, it's been in a perpetual downtrend. Uh, and you know the the thing that is giving me a lot of confidence that we did that we did just go through kind of a bear cycle of sorts uh, is that you know when we when we hit 40k in January uh, the you know the kind of first capitulative moment after we broke the previous all time high that that was the moment when we saw whale balances rolling over a little bit that was when we saw long term holders really start dumping in my opinion that was like the hodler peak and then after that you know we saw the market carried by the grayscale arb by the elon candle and the hype following that and you know just derivatives and and the the liquidations going back and forth there seemed to kind of carry the rally for a couple of months after that it's just the demand itself was was waning you know the demand of the hodlers and the people who stack was kind of waning they had already had their moment and so you know you see the 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 momentum of the market just kind of stall out. We get that kind of rounded top. There's a couple of liquidations. Elon sends a poorly timed tweet. China gets rid of mining. You know, all these things happen in like two weeks. Before you know it, we've lost 50%. And it, I think that we saw that we saw that full capitulation. We saw long-term holders flush down, and it it wasn't as deep of a basin as you would think. Like to your point, Will, which I think speaks to the Dan Held super cycle. Though I I don't like to put a label on it, but you know that that theory that we're not going to see the same kind of full bull bear top of the mountain, bottom of the valley thing uh, every time anymore. And, you know, that that's there's a lot of these metrics going on and they speak to a more sophisticated hodler base. You know, just the concept of stacking sats as is more widely known now. Uh, and just the, the culture around it and the amount of people participating in that is growing. The institutions are growing. Many of them choose to custody in their own way. They're not leaving shit on Coinbase. Uh, th- this, this is a different market that we're in now. And it's establishing a greater support floor that moves up almost like a trailing buy stop. You know, whenever we hit a certain level in capitulation, all of these people who are heavily invested are going to be triggered to buy. And it's my bet that over the long term, that supply, that demand will continue to outpace supply over the macro because it's it's only going up it's only trending up so far and bitcoin would have to change its rules for people to change their minds about it as a store of value and that's not going to happen and i'd probably just uh even follow up with that i mean i totally agree that that february peak across pretty much every metric whether it's lifespan spent um you know any of our spending behaviors that february peak was essentially where the hodlers uh, slowed down their spending we can see it across pretty much every single metric um, and you're right that that topping pattern was a, I mean, you can see it, right? I, I like to, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I like to look at physics and I think markets adhere to physics. You can see just the bowing over of that top, right? It was losing momentum with each side. Um, you know, we, we can look at, uh, you know, those gradient oscillators that I've got. Um, they, they essentially were showing that we were losing oomph with every single push higher. And as we sold down to that 39, 29K um, uh, floor price, we basically saw the hodlers step back in and take their second bite at the cherry. And, you know, I know it sounds a little bit anecdotal, but uh, the price could have dumped down to 20K many times, but it didn't. 
And that was the thing to me that showed that there was a huge bid sitting underneath that floor that we, the market and the bears tried to get down below 29,000 on three or four occasions with some serious gusto. We saw amazing capitulations that were occurring, huge amounts of coins that were purchased up in that 50, 60,000 range were sold. They were realizing losses, but the market didn't fall. It kept holding that level. And what I find quite interesting is that uh, as we rally, as price gets out of that range, right, we can kind of postulate what we think is going on um, in terms of accumulation. But obviously, there's a balance between the on-chain data and what's going on on exchanges. You can't necessarily um, match the two because it doesn't mean that everybody withdraws and so on and so forth. But what we essentially saw is that all those coins that were sent into the exchange, right, we consider that to be somebody realizing a profit or a loss and selling. And for every buyer, there's a seller. And for every seller, there's a buyer. So the fact that we didn't lose that price floor shows us that somewhere in the market, whether on chain or, or in exchanges, there was a buyer down there at 30000 And what we've seen now that price has rallied above, right? It's now pushed uh, above that range. We can now see how many of those coins have, that on chain have now turned to a realized profit. They're back in the green. Now, they may not have been withdrawn from the exchange. Someone may have kept them on there. Other people may have withdrawn them. But we're now starting to see that with exchange withdrawal, right? We're seeing that the balances are now getting back down to 2021 lows. But we can see that about 17% of the total coin supply has elevated, whether it's because you've got, um, uh, whether it's because people who bought at 11,000 are selling up there at 30,000, people who bought at 60,000 are realizing losses at 30,000. But irrespective, we have now increased that hodler floor. There is a huge level of coin. Uh, buy demand and cost basis down there at 30,000. So that's really telling us a lot about that kind of rising floor price that you were saying. Um, you know, you can look at this on the URPD metric, right? The uh, the, the realized uh, price distribution. Um, I remember if, if we go back and look at some of the week on chain newsletters, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it would have been up in that 12, um, trillion dollar range up at the top. Um, we said that there's this enormous cluster up here. Um, it should act as support, but if we lose it, it could become overhead resistance. We then fell down below that, right? It then proved to be a resistance. You start getting people selling. But now that um, that cluster up in that 50, 60,000 range has been whittled away to a, it's kind of the, the um, second or third smallest. We now have two more clusters that are in that 30, 40,000 range and our current price range. So those new price floors have essentially been constructed and built as people have traded, new capitals come in, new people have bought, realize caps now at all-time high. It's showing this new generation of a price floor that really we saw the demand come in. We saw the price uh, contend with 29,000 many times and it just didn't go, it just didn't fall. And that to me tells me a very uh, a very strong story about you know the buy side. The hodler's got a second buy to the cherry and uh, in, what was that, two and a half months? Um, so in roughly three months' time, we're going to see the long-term holder supply chart start to probably rip even higher because it's going to show all of those hodlers because um, what we're seeing at the moment are people who bought back in January, February, March, going into April. What we're about to see is the sell-off, and then it's going to recharge. Another 20% of the coin supply uh, or something on that order is about to transition into the long-term holder supply come Christmas. So uh, I think we're going to see a lot about the conviction of the market, and uh, I actually expect many of these trends to continue. It hasn't weakened uh, to the extent that I thought it was going to, uh, which is a very good sign. Yeah, it's, it's interesting Like what you just touched on. The fact that like, I think there's a big misconception that whenever long-term holder supply goes up for listeners, like it doesn't mean that long-term holders are necessarily buying on that day. Most of it is just um, coins maturing past the 155 day threshold. So like when you look at like the realized cap hodl brands, the hodl bands, 
um, you can see the, the maturation of coins. And so like, as you just mentioned, Chuck, I think it's really kind of a, to be honest, it's, it's, it's kind of incredible to see like all these buyers that basically bought the top and held the whole way down. Uh, I think this kind of supports some of these other metrics that we've been following, like that, that have changed after March that like the, the newer market participants that are now here, you know, they're, they're perhaps not looking for a quick flip on, on BTC. Perhaps, you know, they're just taking an allocation and just holding it and sitting on their hands. So like, yeah, I, I think that's like a really positive sign. Um, like even, even recently when we had this wipeout the other day, whatever it was like 20%, um, it's interesting to see like actually like whales holdings tick up coins move off exchanges on that day. And then, um, you know, when you looked at like spent outputs, long-term holders actually spent less on that day. So they were just sitting tight and riding out the storm. Like they just couldn't seem completely unfazed. Uh, and so I, I think, as you just mentioned, like that, that's kind of the, the strongest signal over anything. It seems like these new mark participants are just, you know, buying and just kind of sitting on their hands. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the, the thing that you, you just mentioned is, is something I'll elaborate on. The long-term holder supply uh, it is, is kind of a net gain metric. You know, every day there are some long-term holders selling their coins. You know, every day there's some one-year, two-year, three-year coins. Once in a while, there's even six or seven-year-old coins, very rarely, that show up and they get sold. But the net gain is what you're seeing every day. The group as a whole is acquiring coins because the majority of people are holding them and not selling them. And they're holding them for at least five months, which is the cutoff to be a long-term holder. And so the fact that we see that trend play out cycle over cycle, market peak over market peak is indicative of a sophisticated class of holder and it's something that you can almost take to the bank and we're seeing that trend happen in front of us now with long-term holder supply and the thing that i think is important is that if if that group as a whole begins to roll over and they begin to start realizing profit and selling and making their coins become short-term coins, uh, then we will see that line rolling over and it will happen very quickly. It takes five months for a coin to graduate into being a long-term held coin, but when you sell, it leaves immediately. And that line has not begun to move. It's moving in the same trajectory upward that it's been at. It's I don't even know what the gradient is, but it's very steep. And but it's it's uh, it's something that we can see coming in a lot of ways. We will see that turnover, and that group has become incredibly accurate at timing. The, if you follow the trend of it, it helps to time the market peaks. You know, and I, I was I was looking at some of this uh, on a, on a YouTube video a couple of days ago. Will I thought it was really interesting also that when we had that flush on the seventh, you know, we lost like eighteen percent or something. Uh, by the end of the day, I think we settled around eleven or twelve percent. But regardless, it's a huge flush. Uh, but on that day, illiquid supply ticks up. Several of the high whale cohorts ticked up. Uh, the minnows, people that own less than one BTC, they ticked up. Balance on exchanges ticked down. Long-term holders went up. You know, all the all of the things you want to go up went up. The thing you want to go down went down. And you're literally visualizing the strong hands buying the dip. That's literally what you're seeing, and it's it's so cool to see that play out, and it also should give everyone a galactic level of confidence in the people that they are investing in this asset with. But on-chain has no value, right? Right. It's all, yeah, we're all looking through uh, Magic 8-Balls. Man, if I could go back to like mid-May and reread some of the comments on our posts. Was, oh, it's great. Oh. 
It, it, and honestly, it, it a, lot of, a lot of it comes down. And to be fair, you know, Bitcoin uh, on chain is very much like Bitcoin, right? It's uh, it's one of these things that kind of spreads via, um, you know, almost philanthropic. People are just putting out their ideas. They're trying to just get ideas out there to help other people. And here's my analysis. Do with it what you will. Um, a lot of it's kind of spread by people uh, who just have an interest in this thing. And again, this is why Twitter, I find, is just incredible. Because you can get, you can tap into the minds of people who are just sharing their ideas, and you know, um, some people look at it and go, "Wow, that that is truly incredible!" Like I get it, um, and other people are skeptical, and sometimes it takes time to to kind of convince, um, and and sometimes you'll never convince people, and you know, th- there's a possibility that uh, perhaps we are wrong, but um, what we see in terms of the consistency of the data, and this is why you know you can look at long term holder supply. Um, but then there's kind of the components to that. And we've mentioned coin maturation, which is one of my favorite uh, topics. Um, and, you know, you can look at coin maturation. We, we know that there was a whole lot of supply accumulated because we saw uh, as price rallied out of that 40,000 level, 17% of the supply is now back in profit. Okay. So now what are we looking for? We know that there's a cluster of supply. So let's look at the hollow ways. Let's look at how those coins migrate from one day to one week to one month to three months. And then we start seeing it show up in long-term holder supply. So you start to see these kind of dynamics in play. Um, and it very much is, you know, as uh, TXMC was pointing out, you can look at all these things like who was spending, who was buying, um, are we seeing exchange uh, balances tick down? And you, you piece together, you're a detective. The idea of on-chain is to use multiple data sources, multiple concepts and stitch together the narrative. And this is where it comes down to right tool, right job. If you're looking at what the smart money is doing on the spending behavior, then look at changes to long-term holder supply, look at changes to the old hollow waves, um, look at spent outputs, uh, look at age demographics like your um, you know, ASOL metrics, MSOL metrics, um, coin days destroyed, dormancy. And even within those, right, ASOL is particularly powerful when you're in a low transaction environment, low mempool environment like we are at the moment because it's only looking at how old the UTXOs are. It doesn't care about how much coin volume is moving, doesn't care about transaction counts. Um, when you look at things like coin days destroyed, it can be low, but that's because there's not a lot of coin volumes, not a lot of activity going on. So you can you have to actually look at the right tool for the right m- m- market circumstance. It's not straightforward. Um, and this is certainly what we try to do in our week on chain newsletter and our video content at Glassnode is we try and show people the, both the spread of tools. So week on week, you'll see there's different tools coming into the newsletter. Um, but we're also trying to demonstrate that you can use different tools at different times and they have specific use cases. Um, and you really are trying to stitch together a narrative, right? You, you will try and capture what are the miners doing and we'll look at all the different metrics that describe their behavior. What are their incentives? What are their drivers? What are their fear and pain points? And then how do we see that show up in on-chain data? So. You know, it's a it's a truly exciting field to be in because we get to see all the stuff play out in real time. It's very vision, um, basically. Absolutely, and uh, you know, as you've experienced, uh, you know, when you get your ideas out in the wild, people challenge and test you. And what better way to get better at your craft than uh, taking all of the critiques on board, and uh, and and really, you know, building up your skill set, taking on what works, um, ignoring what doesn't, and uh, really trying to filter out the uh, the noise from the chaff. Yeah, like. like- it's such a self-policing thing. Like you'll put something out and, um, you know, check it. You're there always. Like if, if, if I'm missing something, man, you're on it. And like, you know, like I, I really appreciate that because you'll point out things that like, I don't notice. And then like dilution proof, he, he does the same. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not that any of us are like trying to necessarily call anybody out. We're just, 
you know, trying to, uh, you know, spread the knowledge and, and help each other to, to, you know, be up to date on, on everything that each other know. Um, and so like, I, I think it's this really cool niche, like self-policing community. Uh, my, my bad TXMC for cutting you off, man. No, no, that's great. It gave me a little bit more to add to because I think that you're spot on. I, I really enjoy how all of us kind of do a little bit of self-correcting and we also help you know, a course correct for each other when we think maybe we're perceiving something a bit inaccurately. And and also for, for people listening, that's also for the benefit of the people reading our threads. You know, I'm very aware of the fact that people read my threads and that they look to me to have some idea of what I'm talking about because I put myself out there, someone interested in on-chain, and now I work for Glassnode. So I'm very aware of the fact that people are reading that. And so when I put something out, it's to say, hey, by the way, we should also consider this. And, I'm, and I know that that's what you guys are doing as well. So that's a healthy part of analysis. It's a healthy part of working in a science together. And you know, someone asked me earlier on Twitter today, well, what if you guys are wrong? What if all this on-chain stuff ends up being wrong? And that's a very fair question. And the answer I gave that person was, well, we will you know, we'll fi- we'll figure out that we were wrong. We'll do a po- postmortem analysis on what we were wrong about, and we'll learn for the next time. That's part of being an analyst. That's part of being involved in a science that's still burgeoning and growing. I mean, it's part of any science. The learning never stops. And if any of us were to ever pretend like we knew exactly what was going to happen, that would be the day that our careers would stop being effective. Totally, it's absolutely a, it's a continual learning process. Um, there's lots of great minds out there that are just sharing concepts and ideas, and you know. And this is the other thing that uh, I think is 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 important: is this is the first full scale cycle where we have not only the analyst but the tools. And you know, the other thing I find just amazing about this is the the number of nationalities. Right? There's people literally all over the world. Um, you know, our week on chain newsletter is getting uh, getting translated by all manner of languages, and it's just so incredible to see. That it, it, I mean, Bitcoin is the global asset, and uh, there are people who are so you know interested and enthralled by what what is going on in the data and just the the facts about the chain um, that they're kind of dedicating their time to uh, to producing these translations, and it's and we're seeing people using Workbench and uh, sharing it in all manner of languages, and I just love the Twitter feature where you can translate uh, live whatever anybody's saying. Um, and I've had conversations uh, with people who we don't even speak the same tongue. And I just find that to be such a, uh, a fascinating and amazing part of this industry. And uh, it shows that there's minds everywhere. It truly speaks to that open source nature and uh, really to the culture of what Bitcoin is, um, which is kind of working together to build a, a greater good. And I think it's, it, it's just amazing. Yeah, the, the one guy that comes to mind is um, Crypto Wizard. He's, he's always coming out with some good stuff on Twitter. Uh, I don't know where he's from, though, or what language that is, maybe, you know. but I believe he's translating it to Turkish, and I know he does a lot of work with CryptoQuant. Uh, he's one of those kind of folks who's putting out content for people who maybe, you know, don't follow English analysts and things. And, yeah, you're spot on with that. Yeah, I, th- I think Workbench was such a great um, tool because, like, for me, I can't code at all. Like, Jack, I know you kind of, like, self-taught yourself Python, but whether it's just the fact that I just – was too lazy to get around to it or, or whatever. I just, I, I never got any real coding skills. And so that kind of opened the door for me to just try out and tinker with so many different metrics that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And like, that just kind of like opened a whole new world for me. Like I don't even honestly look at 
for the most part, um, a lot of the the main metrics, like when I'm just trying to get like a quick, like, you know, at, at 830 when the, when the, which is the time for me, when the daily data updates, like I go straight to my workbench indicators, which is interesting. Like I'll check them first and then I'll check some of the, you know, the, the, uh, main charts, like on the actual, in actual glass node studio, but yeah, the, the workbench, I think it's just been such an awesome tool. And like, we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of like what people are kind of putting together. And like, I'm sure that you guys are working on adding some new like features to it as well. But um, even now, just being able to run like simple ratios, simple formulas, there's there's so many cool things that you can come up with in there. Yeah, I, I play with it a lot. Oh, it's it's fantastic. And uh, it's a credit to the to the devs that, that put it together. Um, you know, on the first thing, but this is the thing, right? When you when you release software, normally your, your version one, uh, you know, has a couple of bugs and you got to tweak around with it. This thing came out and it was ready to go, and there was charts circulating on Twitter, uh, you know, w- within a matter of hours. And it's just so awesome to see. I agree. I think the product is fantastic. Um, and uh, you know, if I was going to give you a piece of advice, Will, it would be uh, dedicate yourself to learning Python because whilst I'm not very good at it, it's uh, it's an incredible skill to have. Um, check on chain was essentially my uh, kind of that was my problem, right? I was on Excel. I was doing all my on-chain analysis in Excel, downloading Coinmetrics data every day in, in 2019, plugging it into a new spreadsheet and rerunning all my models. And uh, that just had to stop. So my goal was get off Excel, uh, taught myself Python as a result of that. Uh, and that was essentially the that was my project. So I think that the important thing is you need to have a project. Um, or an end goal that you're trying to get to because it forces you to keep learning. Um, it forces you to keep Googling, keep control seeing, keep control Ving, and just pasting um, code in until you get it right. Um, so having a project that you want to solve and get done is uh, probably my key piece of advice um, when it comes to learning that kind of thing, but invaluable. Yeah, I use the, the workbench so much. And, you know, we mentioned earlier in the conversation, that was, you know, one of the things that uh, helped get, you know, my following going on Twitter and get people noticing me, you know, doing on-chain an- analysis. But since then, it's been, it's just been a come, it's become an invaluable tool. You know, I've probably got 30 charts saved in there. Will, I've got your supply ratio chart. You know, sometimes I'll see someone else post one. And I got theirs saved and I try to put mine out there because I, I think that one of the things I like so much about it is that even if someone doesn't have you know, tier three data or whatever, they can go open it up and see the formula I'm using. And that helps them understand how I arrived at this metric if they're interested in learning those things. And, you know, they don't have to have today's top tier three data to understand how I'm relating these concepts together and the outcome that I'm explaining, you know, in my tweet. And so I just think it's a really useful tool for analysts who maybe don't have ways to communicate with each other or don't even know each other to share information. And that's how this space will really take off. I mean, I'm not someone who has a higher math background. I can't do calculus. Uh, You know, I'm just good with charts and I see patterns and things. And so that's been my strength. But I can't wait until we get you know more folks more engineer types like check and I, you know i'm sure some of these other uh, guys are also engineers uh, i know willie is an engineer but the it's just it's interesting to 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 think about how much further we can take this when we really get some of these folks in here with new ideas that are, are maybe used to using data in different ways and we just kind of have to show them the keys and just let them go yeah for sure like I'm with you, like on the math thing. Math is definitely not my strength, but you know, once we start getting like some MIT, you know, crazy like math math skilled people, then I think it'll just take all these metrics to like a, a complete another level. Like for me, I'm just kind of like tinkering away with stuff and just like 
throwing stuff at a wall and sees what, seeing what sticks, to be quite honest. Like, I'll just run a ratio of, hmm, I wonder if maybe something will click if I compare this to this. And, you know, it's like kind of like sifting for gold. It's like sometimes you get something, but most of the times you come to nothing. But that whenever you do find, like, some kind of breakthrough or new metric, it, it, it's like the coolest feeling in the world, you know? Absolutely. You know, you're, you're the... You and I both do that a lot. And we, I can tell that you do that because you're posting stuff all the time where it seems like you came up with some new ratio or something. And, uh, you know, we're, that's what really all we're doing. We're just cooks. You know, we're in the kitchen. We got all these ingredients, all these tools. We've used this analogy a couple of times now. And really, you just kind of slap things together. A lot of times it comes out with nothing. Sometimes you put two metrics together into a ratio and it looks like someone spilled spaghetti all over your screen. There's just nothing there at all. Uh, but sometimes you find something really cool. And maybe it's not a metric that you publish a paper about and becomes a, you know, a front page chart on Glassnode. But Maybe it tells a cool story about Bitcoin that you didn't know, know before, or maybe it reinforces a theory you had, and that's all it's good for. Or maybe you just learned that it's garbage and that you need to come at this from a different angle. But there's always learning to be had, and I think as long as you stay curious, uh, that you, you know, there's there's always something new around the corner. Yeah, and I think if I was going to offer kind of, I mean, there's always that side where you can just kind of put things together and you start with an initial concept, you explore some metrics, you explore some ideas. Um, what is uh, kind of has always driven me or the way that I've normally come at these problems of kind of developing new metrics is um, I, I'm trying to consider what is the problem that I'm trying to solve. And when I think about, you know, for example, I look at the uh, the gradient oscillators that I put together. Um, what they're essentially trying to pick up is momentum and momentum relative to capital inflows. So, you know, how do you describe momentum? Well, the height of the peaks on each of the, you know, if we look at 2017, every successive rally had more punch to the upside, right? It had more momentum, which naturally becomes a parabola, right? So if you've got a parabolic chart, then in theory, every single successive peak should be getting higher and higher and it should be extending further and further away from people's cost bases. People are getting richer and richer and richer. And what's quite interesting about that is it's, that's describing momentum. So what it's doing, it's measuring momentum against the realized cap. So the realized cap is obviously increasing with organic real capital inflows. And then you've got your market price, which is volatile on spot exchanges and derivatives and all that kind of thing. And if we compare what happened in 2017, we saw increasing momentum with every peak, which is saying a continuation of the rally. And then if we compare that to our bull market in uh, Q1, Q2 this year, we essentially had the exact opposite. Even though the market was making higher and higher peaks, they had less and less gusto with every move, which is showing this kind of bearish divergence of overall momentum. So if you think about what's the actual, like what's the, the story that you're trying to tell, what's your hypothesis? And then you'd look for metrics that can really describe that. You know, the pure multiple is another great example um, that just shows, you know, what's miners pain point? It's their income. And because they're long-term thinkers, let's look at their income average over the last year and are they currently earning more or less than their long-term average? Because that is kind of their baseline, their, their mean reversion line um, is where their current, you know, where their forecasts are. We've had the last year, this is our average income, so let's forecast that forward. That kind of makes sense as a baseline um, a mean reversion type line. And then you look at how far you've extended uh, above and below that. So sometimes it's just that simple. You think about what is the, the actor? What is, whether it's a long-term holder, a short-term, a minor, whatever it is, whoever your cohort of interest is, your market participant, what is their pain point? What is their um, FOMO point? 
and how is that getting described in the data that's available to you, whether it's in derivatives, whether it's in funding rates, whether it's in transaction counts, whatever it is, how do you describe the momentum of the participants and their drivers in the data? And that's kind of your base case. They're your, your Lego pieces. And then you can go about uh, throwing them together in the pot and seeing what comes out. Do you guys have any thoughts on kind of the transactional activity and um it's, it's been interesting, actually, over the last couple of days, we've seen like a big spike in volume. Um, is, is it true it has something to do with like FTX, like shuffling their, their hot and cold wallets or like consolidating some addresses or something like that? I don't know for sure, but that's my suspicion. I believe that that is the case because um, we have seen these very, very large transactions. Um, I've seen a few conversations uh, floating around um, of people who are starting to track this, and I, I have a suspicion um, so don't take my word for it, but I do believe that it is a um, some kind of peeling transaction. So it's basically the same big block of coins moving around, um, peeling off for whatever reason. But uh, that needs to be be fact checked. Yeah, I you know I, I was I posted something about it as well because I noticed it a few days ago, and that was since then I've heard similar things to you check that it was something to do with FTX. Maybe we'll learn soon, but it. it I, at first, I thought maybe we were we were starting to see volume on chain uh, of the rally type, you know, the retail interest type. But it's just it's too much. It's like half the market cap on one day, uh, and because it doesn't show up in the, it, the the spike wasn't originally in the entity adjusted metrics, but it was in the raw transfer volume uh, and just some of the the signature of it. It does seem like it's one entity kind of shuffling around wallets. It doesn't seem like it's suddenly a, a cohort behaving differently because nothing else has really moved. Yeah, I agree, and um, and that's the other. I mean, the first pass check for me is always is in the entity adjusted. If it's if it's remarkably different, um, then generally that's the case because the entity adjusted algorithm. So, um, what's interesting and why I'm not a huge fan of people kind of looking at individual, you know, big inflows, big outflows, is because there can be noise in the data. Um, as the algorithms learn and they get better at uh, picking up these entities, um, it's, it always improves with time. But, you know, um, Raphael put out an excellent uh, piece on the Glassnode blog talking about the exchange balances, the good, the bad, and the ugly side of it. And the reality is that every exchange has different heuristics on how they manage their wallets. Um, each exchange then sometimes changes those heuristics. Um, they swap to a new address type or something else like that. Um, and there's a lot of things. It's such a, just such a dynamic system. So what we'll find is that, you know, as more of these exchange balances are integrated, as more of these entities get picked up, the entity adjustment is normally the first algorithm that picks it up because it recognizes certain heuristics that are an individual entity. So you'll see it in that data first. And then as it gets built into more of the, you know, explicit, this is FTX's balance, this is this exchange's balance, you know, it, over time, we learn more about what's going on in this uh, very, very dynamic system. Um, but um, just touching back to your first question, Will, about the transaction volumes and counts and things, um, my explanation is actually very simple for all of this. There's been lots of talk about uh, why the mempool is empty and SegWit adoption and all these kind of things. And whilst all of that is true, my honest answer is I just think that we're in a we, we, we're coming out of a bear market. We've uh, essentially taken 50% off the market cap and uh, flushed everybody who came in up at 50, 60,000. Um, we've burnt the market pretty badly and that takes time to repair. And I just think that the people who remained are the smart money um, and they're just a smaller volume of people who are stacking sats on a regular basis. Um, you know, institutions and the like will have a uh, some kind of accumulation strategy, but they can buy large sums of coins uh, and move them around in individual transactions. Like it's not retail level focus. Um, and then there's the other side to it, which is, you know, it's uh, for, for many in retail, it's just more fun to be punting on uh, on altcoins than, than it is on Bitcoin. 
Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of market dynamics playing around that. Um, I, I do think that Bitcoin is kind of um, absorbing the stage of uh, that reserve asset. I think that, you know, the mining industry is maturing in a big way. Um, oil and uh, gas industries are starting to get involved in a much being, a bigger way, which I think is, in my view, one of the most exciting uh, fundamental developments. Uh, I think that's just just next level. Um, but, uh, you know, institutions are seeing this asset just continue to survive, be anti-fragile um, and uh, and resilient throughout 50% drawdowns. I can't remember if it was Paul Tudor-Jones or Stan Druckenmiller who were talking about, you know, seeing the 2017 crash, 80% of coin holders didn't sell. Well, we just saw a 50% drawdown followed by a rally and then a 20% drawdown and uh, hodlers didn't sell, right? We're seeing those same people just stacking sats. So uh, coins are continuously being taken off the market. And uh, and the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that, you know, price is the only thing that can kind of react in in that kind of environment. So it's uh, it's certainly a very interesting and um, very resilient uh, system, which really in an uncertain world uh, with Bitcoin, that's why I look at it. It's, uh, it's kind of my only source of certainty. Yeah, yeah I go ahead, TX. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, you you touched on a lot of it, but I will just add, you know, we saw, you know, active entities and active addresses obviously flush hard, uh, and it was really after you know that end of January, beginning of February peak. You know, active addresses, which isn't the perfect a perfect metric, but when looked in combination with active entities, you kind of get an idea of you know just how much hustle and bustle is on the, the the network every day. Both of those things really started tapering off after that first peak at the end of January, and we bottom it bottomed out as the market flushed in May and in June, and then it's kind of been on an uptick since we hit the low in July. But you know, to your point, the thing that's really interesting, you know, we the the demand the supply flooded the market, price rolled over, everyone bailed out, 50% correction. Uh, but price really just kind of slowly trickled through July or June and July uh, before we hit that ultimate bounce point at the end of July. Might have been the last day of July. Uh, and that really happens because you know, supply floods the market, the water all over the floor, and then the hodlers are really the towels soaking that back up. And it takes time. You know, as long as the seller pressure doesn't suddenly increase again, which is what didn't happen, then it just takes a little bit of time for all of the hodlers to kind of soak up that remaining supply and price can continue to appreciate. And that's why you get that kind of months long, six weeks, eight weeks long, just kind of slow trickle down to the base. And that was really, when we were watching that, we see all these supply metrics turning around. That really started to speak to me that we're, we're not about to see another capitulative moment. This seems like we hit the floor. And since then, the amount of activity on the chi- on the chain, transaction volumes, the amount of you know uh, congestion in the mempool has increased a bit. The mempool still has moments in the day where it's pretty clear, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean we can't have a price rally. You know, price can go up on low volume, but I think the thing we need to really watch for is that as we get back to the highs, and I had a tweet about this earlier today, as we get back to the all-time highs, that's typically when strong hands begin to start selling and realizing gains. That's when they start looking to get out. Uh, as we break all-time highs. We can get there on low volume, but we really need to see casual volume, casual interest, institutional inflows, lots of money start coming back in before long-term holders start looking for liquidity because that's Otherwise, that's how the market gets flooded and price rolls over. So we don't have to have high volume right now. We really need to have high volume when we get back to 60,000 or uh, we might not have enough momentum to sustain itself. The price might not. 
Yeah, like I basically envision it as like the long-term holders are handing the baton off to the short-term holders whenever we have a major, you know, uh, bull market. So, you know, obviously like when you just zoom out and, and look at the dynamic between short and long-term holders into strength, um, you know, long-term holders generally just kind of scale out. They don't perfectly time the tops. They just slowly scale out the strength and then heading into, um, you know, periods of time where Bitcoin is heavily discounted, they slowly been, you know, they come in and, and uh, average average in their cost basis. So, um, yeah, like one one thing that I've really been looking at, and I think you guys have as well, uh, is the, the spin output age bands and just looking at like outputs above six months and comparing now to like late 2017, when we had that dead cat to whatever it was, roughly like 17K, I think, you just saw like long-term holders completely just abandoned ship. Um, and that was, you know, a huge red flag if you were looking at that at the time. I think um, spent outputs over six months spiked to like 45% of overall outputs. Um, and we had like kind of a one-off spike like two or three weeks ago. I think it was from like two to three year um, outputs. But like, other than that, it's, it's, it's been in a decline um, overall and it's just been flat. So you're not seeing anything, you know, concerning in that sense. Obviously we've been talking about like, you know, uh, long-term holders have, have been sitting tight, but also like you're not, you're not seeing them sell at all uh, in, in terms of like something that would, that co- that would kind of, you know, recognize um, or resemble like a, a, a dead cap bounce. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's a matter of like, do those do those short-term holders take the baton and basically accelerate us forward once we start getting up towards those highs? Um, the way that I look at things, so basically, yeah, we were looking for that. Uh, I've been looking for that dead cap bounce. We basically get a rally higher out of that 30, 40K range. And, uh, you know, I was looking for on both the spent output age bands and also our new metric spent volume age bands. And it's actually important to map those two together now. Um, they're an excellent combination because spent output age bands is looking at just the age of the UTXOs that were spent. So you're only looking, it's almost like an analogy to transaction counts, which is also analogous to the average spent output lifespan, the ASOL metric. So those three are looking at transaction count, how, of all the transactions that were spent, the transaction count, how many of them were different ages. Now, if you've got, let's imagine that that band exploded to all, to all time highs. You've got old coins being spent all over the place, but they all contain 0.00001 BTC. Who cares? So this is where you combine it with the spent volume age bands and you say, okay, so at the moment, we actually do have quite a few old outputs being spent, but how much volume's in them? And when we compare the amount of volume that's in them, it's actually relatively low. So even though there are old coins being spent, they don't contain a huge proportion of the daily volume. So that's a quite an interesting insight. Um, we, we just aren't seeing that mass uh, sellout. Now, look, what, what kind of is a tailwind is if we do get some kind of macro uncertainty, we'll see how it all plays out. Um, you know, the, the world is increasingly uncertain, but uh, we'll see. I mean, long-term holders essentially didn't sell any coins during the March 2020 sell-off, which was kind of the last time that we saw some kind of macro uncertainty. And uh, you can see in many of the metrics like entity um, uh, wallet counts, right, when we're looking at the minnows, I think Willie Wu's done some great work looking at this. And you can see the gradients steepen. Right, the amount of coins that were accumulated following March 2020, there was always a, an uptrend, um, but then you get this steepening up of the gradient, and we saw the exact same thing after the May sell-off. So you see this um, sell-off in March 2020, more people start stacking Sats. It's kind of like the you know the, the, um, the macro stack. Then you get the sell-off after all of the energy fud and the you know the great migration of miners and all this kind of thing, poorly worded tweets, 
and suddenly you get the stat stackers step back in and they start reaccumulating. So, you know, we can see this conviction happening on chain. It's just a, uh, it, it is a quite an extraordinary um, thing to see. Uh, it's good for distribution, right? We're seeing more people uh, with small balances stepping in and just basically stacking this thing whenever it's uh, uh, things get macro uncertain because it's providing, you know, Bitcoin, in my view, provides a lot of people hope. It certainly provides me a lot of hope because I can see a better world on the other end of this thing. And, you know, watching what's going on with El Salvador, of course, it's going to have its critics. But, uh, you know, people can pay for invoices on the other side of the world and and buy McDonald's with Lightning Network. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And if anything, it's going to push this technology to adapt um, to the circumstances ahead of us. Um, and we get to kind of see all this play out uh, in, in the live game. So it, it really is just a very, very exciting exciting time. And uh, I think there's good things ahead for Bitcoin and, uh, for, and for on-chain analytics. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, uh, we've been talking a little over an hour now. So I think uh, it's probably a good time to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, if you guys have any you know, closing thoughts, if you want, um, you can get that out or, and I also want to give you an opportunity to kind of, uh, plug yourselves in. So check if you want to go first and then, uh, TXMC. Yeah, mate. Thanks for having us on. It's a, uh, you know, um, from me, I think, uh, just paying attention to, if there's one thing I was going to kind of tell whatever listeners, um, you know, what we're doing over there at Glassnode is we're really trying to push the education side and, uh, you know, get the information out there so that people can absorb in bite-sized chunks. So whether it's via a week on chain newsletter, um, which is normally about a you know five to six minute read length, um, or our videos that come out on the Tuesdays, that's you know those two pieces of content you'll get the kind of the, the written report, and then on the Tuesday you'll get our uh, our newsletter, uh, our video update, and really that's where you get to hear my thoughts and how I came to the conclusions that I did. Um, when we put together the, uh, the the newsletter. And increasingly, you're going to start seeing the likes of uh, Permable Nino and TXMC's uh, authorship on that thing. So, you know, you're going to start getting a bit of a, a snapshot of what's in our heads. Um, and really, the goal, or at least uh, my vision for what that newsletter is, is really about, is it's this like 30 minutes, 10 minutes to read the article and 20 minutes to watch the video. If you allocate that much a week, you will continue to learn by repetition. You'll see these metrics come up. You may not understand it the first time you see it, but you'll understand it the second time and the third time it'll start to click. And then one day you'll start to go, actually, I can glue these pieces together. So it really is like it's a continual learning process, half an hour a week, bite-sized chunks. Um, and I think that people will be surprised uh, when they start you know, um, focusing and just, just trying to consider what these different pieces are telling you. Think about the different cohorts that we're looking at and really consider this thing as behavioral economics. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned. Uh, it's certainly been a, been a true joy for me to, uh, to learn and kind of come to terms with. And uh, it's certainly one of my passions to help share it with as many people as are uh, willing to listen to my ramblings. I really appreciate being on here. This is really exciting for me to get to just sit around and uh, share thoughts and just kind of you know shoot the breeze with a couple of people that I admire and get a lot of learnings from. Uh, so th this has been a really a real treat for me. Uh, I didn't expect that I would ever work for Glassnode. This is a, a, a bit of a I didn't even have this dream until a few months ago, and so it's it's a new dream come true. It's kind of taken over my life, and I'm really enjoying talking about Bitcoin. You know, I, I'm excited for what we're going to do together at Glassnode. I think that you know we have. Uh, you know, a best-in-class data science team, uh, just a really high-quality suite of products and analytics that we can share with people and create stories that tell the history and the life of Bitcoin and the people that invest in it. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's other coins too. You know, we've got 
data on Litecoin. We can look at Ethereum. We can look at stable coins. We can see the derivatives markets, like you said. We can mesh all these things together and see how these forces work in, in tandem and, and against one another. And it's There's a lot more for us left to do. Um, and I, I'm certainly still just getting started. I, I'm, I'm, the being a student never ends. Uh, if anyone wants to follow along with what we're doing, obviously on Twitter, we're at Glassnode. You'll find Checkmate on there. He's at Checkmatey with underscores. I'm on Twitter at TXMC Trades, T-R-A-D-E-S. I post a lot of analysis uh, and I have a YouTube channel, Alpha Beta Soup which you can find on my profile at Twitter. I've been putting out a lot of videos talking about this stuff. We go through the charts, we break things down, I give you an idea of what I'm looking at, and uh, you know, we'll just continue learning about this asset together. It was very exciting times, and um, we're still so early. I love that title, Alpha Beta Soup. It's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's My wife came up with it, and she just kind of blurted it out in the car when I was trying to come up with ideas. And she's like, what about Alpha Beta Soup? And I was like, oh, my God, you're a genius. It's, it's, it's absolutely genius. I love it. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, this was a blast. Everybody who's listening, be sure to check out, um, you know, obviously, Glassnode and, and both of their Twitter accounts as well invaluable content being put out every day on, on their accounts and uh, through those channels that they mentioned. And uh, yeah, guys, hopefully uh, we can do this. Like, I don't know, every, every couple months or so I'll try to get like David and Willie on next time or something, you know, we could just, uh, you know, every, every couple you know months or whatever, we can just, you know, talk all things on chain. So, but this was so fun guys. I'm glad we did this. I had a blast. Uh, likewise. And mate, you, you keep doing what you're doing, right? You're, uh, you're clearly making waves. Um, there's, there's, you know, plenty of room out there for good ideas and uh, you've kind of thrown yourself into the thick of it, which is the best way to learn and get better at things. So uh, kudos to you. Absolutely. And, you know, you're, you have a genuine energy. You're clearly passionate about these things. I mean, obviously all of us are, but, it, you you know, your exuberance comes through and I think people connect with that. So, you know, just stay genuine. And I think that you have, uh, you know, only up to go, my friend. Well, thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks, Cheers. Mate. Cheers.